Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, to thank you and praise you that the Word of God is alive and it is living and it is true and it is all we need to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us to see the example and to live up to your standard for us, to please you, Lord. And we know that it is not within our power to do that. We have to rely on you completely. And so help us to leave here today knowing that regardless of what our fiery furnace is like, you will go through it with us. If we rely on you, you will bring us through it, Lord, without any smoke, without any burnt on us. We will be like being going through the fire as gold does. We will be tried, but we will come forth pure. And we will give you the praise and the glory for that. And I pray that you will use Catherine now for your glory. In Jesus' name. We're on no burning. No bowing, no budging, and today's the exciting part, no burning. So open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to finish the chapter, and maybe by the time we break for summer, we'll be about halfway through the book. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, we're going to be moving on to chapter 4, 5, and 6, which are all narrative, and I have noticed that narrative passages of Scripture go a whole lot faster than we get into prophecy. So maybe we'll finish, and Daniel will therefore only take us two years. Progress, right? Two years in the book of Daniel? Twelve chapters? All right. Um, in response to King Nebuchadnezzar's second chance invitation to bow before his image and thereby save their necks, save their lives, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael gave what is one of the greatest affirmations of faith in all the Bible. What a bold affirmation of faith they gave. We looked at that last week. They offered to the king no explanation, really, for why they refused to bow to his golden image. They didn't try to rationalize their stance or justify it, um, nor did they offer some kind of a compromise to him. Wouldn't you maybe have tried to do that? I don't know, it's very difficult to put yourself in their shoes, but standing there looking at the burning fiery furnace, I think, wow, I'd try to compromise, and you know, well, maybe I'll bow halfway down, <laughs> something like that. But they didn't do that. There was no apology in their answer. They gave no defense. They did not beg for their lives, did they? They didn't plead for their lives. There was only their bold declaration that the God they served was stronger than Nebuchadnezzar. They said, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. They knew one way or another, whether it was by pardon or instant paradise, one way or another, they would be delivered. Their testimony for the Lord was unwavering, wasn't it? Unmovable, just amazing. They would not budge. They wouldn't budge. Their faith held firm even as they stood on the very precipice of death. They would not betray their God. That is commendable. That's commendable faith, isn't it? Now, what we need to realize as we conclude Daniel chapter 3 is that although the end of this story was victory, the end of this story was triumphant, but what we need to realize is that God is just as sovereign. He is just as good when he delivers and when he heals as when he does not. He's just as loving. He's just as mighty when he does not provide us with everything that we think we need 
as when he does. And he's just as gracious and just as merciful when he says no as when he says yes. God is still God, regardless of what we might think he should do in any given situation. And he is to be uncompromisingly worshipped no matter what, because what he does is his business. You see, he has a greater perspective on everything in our lives, doesn't he? He has a greater perspective on the whole picture of history past to history future. And therefore, he knows his ways are higher, right? His ways are better. His ways are wiser. He knows um, that even if he says no, let's say you're very, very sick and you've got something terminal and you pray and you pray that you won't die or you have a loved one, you pray that they won't die. Well, he knows that even the death of his saints is far better for them. What's it say? The death of his saints to the Lord, it's precious in his sight, the death of his saints. Because he knows that it's instant heaven, glory, to be with him is far better. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? You know, those loved ones of ours that have gone on to be with the Lord, if you gave them a choice to come back, you know what they would say? No, thank you. <laughs> this is far better. I'll just wait till you join me here. I don't want to come back. God does not promise a life of leisure and a bed of roses once we have submitted our hearts to him. And if somebody witnessed to you that way originally, you know, accept Jesus and everything will be great, <laughs> that was not the truth. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We are actually promised that the more godly we are, and the more we confess the Lord before men, and the more committed we are to serve him, the more we will be ostracized and we will be shunned by society and even by those maybe in our own family and friends who don't know the Lord. Isn't that the case? That is the truth. That's why these guys were, you know, thrown into the fiery furnace because they were so godly. They would not compromise. They wouldn't, they wouldn't bow. Well, that's the bad news. <laughs> But the good news, the good news is that we also have the Lord's repeated promises throughout scripture that he will be with us, as Terry prayed. He will be with us through our sufferings, and he will deliver us out of them. It says in Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. We will be delivered out of every affliction one day, right? Sometimes we're still alive when we're delivered from them. Sometimes we're just delivered because he takes us home to be with him. He said in uh, Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And the last words he ever spoke before his ascension were what? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, end of the age. The three Hebrews standing before the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar held fast to their internal principles, which were based on the word of God, on scripture. And in this case, based on the first two of the Ten Commandments. What did I pass on the way here? Oh, the carpenter shop says, thou shalt have no other gods before thee. And I thought, well, that's exactly why they wouldn't bow. They would not have any gods before thee. And the second commandment says, shall not make unto thee any graven images, and you shall not even bow to them. So their internal principles were based on God's word. They wouldn't bow, they wouldn't budge, though faced with the most extreme of external pressures. 
And it doesn't get any more extreme than a burning fiery furnace, does it? So they wouldn't do it. So therefore they were bound and they were cast into that furnace uh, that Nebuchadnezzar in his angry frustration had commanded to be heated to the maximum. The furnace was hot, but the king was even hotter. <laughs> Blinded by his massive ego, the furious Babylonian king who did have anger management problems had thrown all caution and reason to the wind with his challenge to the most high God of heaven and earth when he said to the Hebrews this arrogant question, and who is that God who is able to deliver you out of my hands? Pretty arrogant. Well, that, that spelled trouble for the king, didn't it? Wait till we get to chapter four. Oh my, he had to go to the humility school of God and that's not a good school to go to. <laughs> it was a direct challenge to the only eternal self-existing God the one who called his name, I am that I am. It's hard for us to fathom with our finite minds, a God that went from, you know, and had no beginning and has no end, a self-existent eternal one. And puny little Nebuchadnezzar is challenging him. Basically what his challenge was, was his fiery furnace. Now it was big and it was hot, but he was challenging his little fiery furnace compared to God, who is a consuming fire. <laughs> I mean, there's no contest. That's all, you know, it's always a horrible mistake, and we've seen that. I think you did that in one of your homework questions. It's always a horrible, horrible mistake when a man challenges God's authority because it's just a downward spiral from there. Pride cometh before what? Fall. Pride cometh before destruction. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, Jesus said. Nebuchadnezzar was going to learn the meaning of those words, but he was going to do it the hard way. You know, it's a whole lot easier to humble yourself before the Lord and let him lift you up, let him exalt you, um, than to do it the hard way. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is walking around on all fours like a cow eating the grass of the field for seven years. Not too good, right? Not a good way to learn humility. Now he learned it, but that was definitely the hard way. Well, we left our study of Daniel chapter 3 with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael on their fall down to imminent death. Kind of hated to do that, but all week long they were falling. We left them falling. The mighty men who the king had commanded to bind them and cast them into the fiery furnace had just perished from the exceeding heat that emanated from the top of that furnace. That was in verse 22. So their last act... The last act of those mighty men had been performed in obedience to their earthly king. Now think of the contrast, contrast to um, what happens with those who obeyed their heavenly king. It's always better to obey God above man, isn't it? To obey an evil king. Now I know it's hard because they were soldiers and they needed to obey their king. But what a contrast between those who obeyed their earthly king, evil earthly king, compared to those who obeyed their perfectly good heavenly king. The truth is that the miracle connected with the fiery furnace actually began that very moment when the three, no, I always say three mighty men. I don't know why I want to make three mighty men and three Hebrews, but I don't know how many mighty men there were. But the moment they perished, the miracle began because who was right there with them? The three Hebrews. So if the mighty men perished, 
why didn't the three Hebrews who were bound, why didn't they perish? I mean, that's really where the miracle began. The flames that killed the mighty man, men should have instantly killed the victims with them who were bound, but they didn't. And that fact right there should have grabbed the attention of everyone, the king and everyone watching. Well, as we discuss the final verses of this great chapter, we're going to do so in three parts. We're going to look at the confusion of the monarch. The monarch is the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Then we're going to look at the confirmation of the miracle. And thirdly, the commendation by the monarch. So let's begin by looking at the confusion of the monarch. But I want to back up. We're going to actually start our lesson in verse 23. But let's back up and review. Go back to verse 19. Let me start there. <clears throat> Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did you have fun counting how many times? <laughs> I know, that was, a, that was really not a very good question, but I thought, you know what? It would make you read the chapter over and over and over. That was the whole purpose. And I know everybody disagrees on how many times. But, oh well, you know, I, I get hard up for questions sometimes. <laughs> anyway, that's where we ended last week. Now let's start our new lesson, verse 23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished. Have you ever been astonished? <laughs> I love that word. Uh, he was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. <laughs> Real excited. He answered and said, Lo, which means like, Behold, look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Ooh, exciting. It's tragic <clears throat> that the king had not thought through the danger that his hasty commands caused for innocent others. His pride, his anger, and even his fear cost him some of his very best men the mightiest men in his army. And his haste and his fear and his pride would have cost him even better men if the Lord had not intervened. Would have cost him men who had served him with integrity and faithfulness for some 20 years. Many proud leaders have done this down through the ages of history. They have lost valuable men and women simply because of their thoughtless, self-centered evil demands. You think of military leaders who have led soldiers out onto the forefront of a battle just for no reason. You know, I think the way they used to fight was so awful, they would just march right into the gunfire. <clears throat> but they were lots of times kings, you know, they don't care about the little man. They would just send their soldiers out. And what was it all about? 
So many battles have just been for pride and ego and more power. Just horrible. Well, let's talk about the furnace for a minute. Verse 22 says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those, of course, are their Babylonian names, were taken up to the furnace, right? Taken up. Whereas verse 23 says that they fell down into the midst of that enclosed inferno. So, I don't know if you've ever pictured in your mind the king standing and looking down a hole like a pit or something, and they're down there in that hole. That's not accurate. This tells us that they had to go up before they fell down, so the whole furnace is above ground. It's above ground, and it probably had some kind of a ramp that the soldiers took the three up to the top, the big mouth of the furnace. Um, and once at the top, of course, the fatal temperatures, the flames beneath, shot out of that opening, and that's what killed the king's mighty men. Just as the Hebrews, I guess their last action was they cast the Hebrews down into the furnace. And yet, if you look ahead, I didn't read this, but if you look at verse 26, when Nebuchadnezzar comes near the, to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, he doesn't die nor is he in danger of dying. Now that mouth of the burning fiery furnace is not the top, not where they put, push the uh, victims in. This means the mouth, it was actually like a door or a window, um, was, a, was an opening at the, in the side of the furnace. It was for the men in charge of burning whatever they were doing in there, if they were smelting or if they were curing or baking bricks or ore or whatever was going on, the ones in charge could look through this door or this window to see the progress of the bricks inside. So the one that King Nebuchadnezzar looks into is more of a door on the side. It's not the top of the furnace where they were pushed in. <clears throat> and therefore, he was not in any danger of his life when he peered through. Verse 25 tells us that inside, the inside of the furnace was big enough that how many men were walking around in it? Four men were walking around inside of it. So this... This is massive. This is a large furnace. It was likely, very likely, the kind of furnace that was used to fire some 15 million kill-dried bricks that King Nebuchadnezzar used in his many building projects. You know, he was quite an architect, and he built many um, uh, temples to the gods and ziggurats and, of course, his Ishtar Gate and all kinds of things. And... and just 15 million bricks, and that didn't include the glazed bricks that he also, and they even had to be fired at a higher temperature. So they had these huge, massive furnace, um, furnaces that were built of bricks, but big. I mean, think, think really big. Bricks normally cure at 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. And uh, glazed bricks, or the kind that the Babylonians often used, would have operated at 2,404 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I don't care if you're talking 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit or 24, it's still hot. I mean, you're just gone in an instant. That's hot. And that's the normal, and he said to stoke it up seven times hotter. I don't even know if that was possible, but in other words, make it as hot as possible. So... It was a big, massive, hot, very, very hot furnace. When the Hebrews fell into it, they were bound. 
okay? And there's several things to mention about their binding. First of all, the bonds were very likely chains. Not only were chains the common way in which captives and prisoners were bound back in that period of time, um, but this would explain Nebuchadnezzar's astonishment, <laughs> his astonishment that the three men were loose when he looked down. If their bindings had been rope or some kind of uh, flammable material, I don't think he would have been quite so astonished uh, that they were loose as compared to chains. I really think they were bound with chains. That was the common way of doing it. So when we look and we say, wow, you know, they don't even have the chains on them anymore. But of course, there was plenty of stuff going on down there for him to be astonished anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, the bonds were the least of it. Well, the second thing to think about with regard to the binding, whether it was ropes or chains, is that it meant, now think about this. Have you ever thought about this? I know we've known this story since we were little kids, if you're raised in the church. So there's some things maybe you never really thought about. Maybe your Sunday school teacher never even brought it to you. But they're bound, right? Okay? That means they have no use of their hands and no use of their legs. They're bound. So when they're cast in, they have no way to protect their eyes. I mean, wouldn't that be your first reaction? You're going into flames. You'd protect your face with your hands. They have no way to control how they're going to fall whether they land, you know, bonk on their head at the bottom of that brick furnace. Um, no way to cushion their fall at all. Had you ever thought about that? And yet, part of the miracle is they, they have no hurt on them whatsoever. Not only the flames, but no hurt because of the fall. No broken bones, no bruises, no head concussion. The whole thing is just what? An absolute miracle. It's just a miracle. Um, now, of course, as hot as it was, they should have been unconscious or deep fried by the time they hit the bottom anyway, right? Because the mighty men were. So the minute they were up there, the whole thing really is a miracle. However, the flames did not consume them. The heat did not immediately scorch their lungs. And they didn't die from smoke in inhalation. There was no hurt on them, which means that they were protected from more than just the fire. There was no bruises, no broken bones, no concussion from their fall without the use of arms or legs. It's all completely inexplicable, isn't it? I mean, it's just completely inexplicable. Inexplic and it only adds more glory, just like Elijah doing everything he did with his altar to make sure God got the glory, pouring water all over it and everything. This is just... Everything Nebuchadnezzar did just added, you know, binding them, um, having their clothes so they don't even have their clothes with the smoke smell on them and all that just adds more to the glory of God, the wondrous, miraculous work of God. Well, if Nebuchadnezzar had been disturbed when the Chaldeans gave their report about these Hebrews not bowing to his golden image, and he had been, right, he was furious about it. Um, and if he had then been even more disturbed when his three Hebrew servants refused to bow, even when he gave them his gracious second chance to do so, and he had been, right? Just furious, furious, furious. He was now completely shaken to the core of his being when he saw what he saw. He was astonished. <laughs> what does astonished mean? He was overwhelmed 
with astonishment. It's just another word for astonishment. He was just overwhelmed. And what did he do? What does it say? He rose up in haste. This king was always doing something in a hurry, wasn't he? Haste, haste, haste. He's just hurry, hurry, hurry. <laughs> he rose up. That tells us something. What does that tell us? What had he been doing if he had to raise up? He had been sitting. Oh, I got to thinking about that, and that just really sickened me. Apparently, he had them bring his little throne <laughs> from where he had been at the golden image uh, ceremony, had them bring the throne over to the furnace and sat down to watch the reality show. Yuck. I mean, that just, that makes me sick. How anyone, and I know, ooh, some, some things that people watch on television, I can't even watch. Mm. My husband likes to watch those survival shows where they eat scorpions and they eat anything that moves and <laughs> even some... Ooh, I don't even want to go there, but I don't. I said, how can you watch that kind of stuff? But can you imagine this king wanting to sit there and watch men being cremated alive? I think it just takes a particularly cold and cruel heart to want to see such a horror. I wouldn't want to see it for anything. I would never be able to sleep again. Yet, it really shouldn't surprise us. The heart is deceitful, right? And desperately wicked. Uh, and if you think about pe what people have gone to watch over the years, just they would go and watch the gladiators fight and cut each other up and blood everywhere. And then they would go to hangings, yes. Yeah, that was the entertainment back in the Western days to go see somebody get hanged. And the, um, when they would uh, wrap the Christians in sheep, uh, skins and then feed them to the lions and people be cheering and watching oh just horrible why why do people desperately wicked hearts right you want to watch that well apparently it hadn't moved the king emotionally when he had just lost his mighty men the mightiest men in his army he had just lost them and he's not grieving he doesn't stop the whole show you know he gets his chair over there to now watch three men who had served him so faithfully for some 20 years, and he wants to watch them come to their horrific screaming end. Ugh. You see, the king's expectation when he had them bring his chair, their, his chair over there was that he would see three bodies, arms and legs wrapped in chains, burst into flames, and then writhing in anguish, shrivel to nothing but ashes in a matter of minutes. That's what he thought he was going to watch through that window. But instead, when he looked in that window, he saw the three men, totally recognizable. He knew them. He knew their names, calls them by name. They're no longer bound with chains or ropes, and they're walking around freely, with absolutely no indication of hurt on their bodies. They're not screaming in agony. They're not melting and turning to ashes at all. It's amazing. And, and that's not all, is it? That's not the end of it. There aren't just three in there. They're not alone. There's a fourth person in there who Nebuchadnezzar described as one like the Son of God. And in verse 28, 
he refers to this mysterious fourth person as an angel sent by the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In her, his perplexed wonder, the king then asked his counselors a question, which is really an exclamation. He says, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And what did they do? They quickly assure him, true, O king. Yes, that's the case. I wonder why he's asking. He's a little loony, you know. True, O king. It's obvious from their lack of emotion that they're not watching through the window. He is, and they don't see what he sees. I think maybe the Lord is working just with the king, and maybe the king is the only one who saw the fourth person in the furnace. Could be. Because I know the others all examine the three guys when they come out, but there's no indication that they actually saw them inside of that furnace. The Lord is working with the king here. <clears throat> but um, uh, so he says, you know, our, didn't we just cast three? And before they can ask the king, you know, well, why are you asking us that question? Of course, that's what we did. We threw the three in that you wanted thrown in <clears throat> at a big expense because we lost our mighty men. But before they could ask him, he told them why he asked that question. He says, lo, lo, behold, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Here's the question. Now, who is the fourth person in the furnace with the three Hebrews? The one who Nebuchadnezzar described as the Son of God or a son of gods. Now, I want you to know that this is in Aramaic, right? This section of the book of Daniel is in Aramaic. The definite article, the, the son of God, or if you have a translation that says a son of gods, that definite article, the, or a, is not in the original Aramaic. In the original, it simply says bar, B-A-R, Elahin. Elohim is comparable in Hebrew to Elohim, okay? Um, but the king it was a pagan who believed in many gods, and he even believed in demigods. What's a demigod? Well, a demigod in classical mythology was a person who, after they died, attained godhood, or it was a lesser deity of some type, or it was the product of a god, and the offspring of a god and a human. That was a demigod, sort of a half-god, you know, half-human, half-god. So he merely, when he saw what was going on in there, he merely said what popped in his mind as he looked at the unusual appearance of that fourth person who was in the form of a man and yet, obviously, there was something very otherworldly about him. So the king's two descriptions were son of God or son of gods. You see, out of the mouth of the Hebrews, when they said Elohim, it's with a capital E, and it's plural. The I am ending is plural because their God, our God, is a triune God, Elohim. But when pagans use that word, Elohim, um, well, like the pagans with Aramaic, it would be Elohim, that meant with a little e, and that meant plural many gods. 
So that's why the translations are different. Some says son of God with capital, and some say, say son of gods. He, as a pagan, was saying son of God, a god or gods. <clears throat> so he, he says son of gods or an angel. Did you know that most of the ancient people actually believed in angels? They believed, you know, I thought about the Sadducees, <laughs> who should have believed in angels, but they didn't. But most of the pagans did believe in angels. Um, but the king, obviously, obviously, King Nebuchadnezzar did not understand the concept of a pre-incarnate Christ. He didn't even know God the Father, much less God the Son. Now, Jesus Christ, did he ever appear in the Old Testament before his Incarnation before he was born in the body of a man in Bethlehem. Did he ever make appearances in the Old Testament? Oh, yes, many times. He was actually the one in the burning bush, spoke to Moses. He's the one who wrestled all night with Jacob. He appeared to um, Joshua and made many appearances. Abraham, ate with Abraham and two angels. And I mean, and every time the pre incarnate. Eternal Son of God appeared in the, and sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord. Whenever he appeared in the Old Testament days, it's called a Christophany, a Christophany or a Theophany. Um, but of course, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know all this, but can God use the mouth of anybody? <laughs> yes, I'm proof. <laughs> he can use the mouth of a donkey. Haven't we seen that he, when we studied the life of Christ, that he even used Caiaphas, the evil high priest, to speak the truth? That one man would die for the nation, not only the nation, but the whole world. He used Pilate's inscription on the cross. You know, what I've written, I've written. This is Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. Um, he used the Roman centurion. Surely this is the son of God. Well, he used Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar actually spoke a truth when he said that the fourth one was like the son of God, son of God. That's why the King James puts it in capital because they knew it was the son of God and I absolutely believe that this was a Christophany. This was a vision of Jesus Christ um, appearing with these three men in the fiery furnace. Now, I always get frustrated with scripture that doesn't tell us what I wanna know always kind of ends short. Like when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, I wanted to hear the sermon. He doesn't give it to us. When Paul was caught up to the third heaven, don't you want to know what he saw up there so much, but he's not allowed to give it to us. Well, we're not given what the conversation was down there in the fiery furnace. Wouldn't you have liked to have known what they were talking about down there? This is the last time we ever hear of these three Hebrews, and they just stay quiet. Never hear from them again. Now, I'm sure they shared what went on with Daniel, but he, the Holy Spirit, didn't let him write that either. But I got to thinking, what would they be talking about? Surely Jesus was talking to them down there. And I thought, ah, I bet I got a clue from Isaiah. A hundred years late, uh, earlier, the Lord Jesus, speaking through the mouth of his prophet Isaiah, had said these words. Now, this would really be appropriate for him to speak to these three guys. Here's what he had said. Fear not. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? <laughs> Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Ah, wouldn't that be appropriate for such a case as this? 
Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this. Now, this is important. If the Chaldeans, you know, the elite wise men, the one who did, you know, really pushed the king about this whole thing, the ones who tattletailed on the three Hebrews, if they had been successful in getting rid of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael because of their refusal to bow to the golden image, they would not have stopped with that. As soon as Daniel came back from wherever he was, what do you think their next little thing would have been? They would have pressed on to also get rid of Daniel. Okay, let's see if Daniel will bow king. And the king would be put, you know, in a difficult place. Um, and then, probably, this would have led to go even further. This could have, this had the potential to end the Jewish faith. If the captive Jews of the Babylonian kingdom were then forced to bow or burn. I mean, this is serious. This is really serious. You know, if they had been successful with all of the leaders of the whole Babylonian kingdom, what was to stop the Chaldeans from presenting to King Nebuchadnezzar, okay, you've been successful with the leaders, let's go down to all your subjects. Let's build golden images everywhere in your kingdom. And in Egypt, you know, in Iraq, or you know, all those different countries, whatever they were called back then, um, make the people all bow, unify. This is what the Antichrist is going to do with the whole world, right? Make everybody in your kingdom bow or burn. And what would have been the outcome of that? The end of the Jewish people. Because most of them, now some would bow, but they wouldn't be true Israel, would they? The true ones, the true ones would not bow and they would be burned. So this is very serious. This is why it was so important for the Lord to display himself here as the all-powerful God to King Nebuchadnezzar so he would not press his point with his death decree regarding the golden image to his whole kingdom. This was a matter that really did require a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ both to save Israel from extinction, this is kind of like another um, Esther situation here. This is why it's so important for these three guys not to bow. It wasn't just about them, it was about their whole people. It was about Israel. You know, Satan has always been wanting to destroy Israel, right? Before Jesus came, he wanted to extinguish her so he couldn't come as he had promised through her people through the line of Abraham and David, etc. And now after, he's still trying to destroy Israel. So again, there won't be an Israel and a people for him to return to. So it's important that Christ appeared to save Israel from extinction and change the heart of the king regarding his horrible decree, bow or burn. Are you following me? Had you ever thought of this story in light of that truth before? It's a very important miracle. Now, another spectacular condition of the men in the furnace is that they're walking around. They're walking around in the midst of the fire. With their legs loosed from the bonds, they're free to move, right? But instead of trying to leave the confines of that hot furnace, which they did do, over in verse 26, when the king calls them to come hither, they were able to come out of it, probably through that side door, the bottom where they would put the bricks in and take the bricks out. They were able on their own 
to leave the furnace. Obviously, nobody was going to go in the furnace and get them. <laughs> so they left on their own. But here, they're walking around in the fire, content to stay there. They're not trying to escape, are they? They're not trying to get out. They're just walking around, having a good old time. <laughs> Why didn't they try to get out? Well, because they had more freedom and they had better fellowship in the fire with Christ than they had experienced outside the fire with the Chaldeans, with Nebuchadnezzar, and even with the mighty men. Isn't that amazing? They had, they, they had a better time in the fire than they had had outside. They were in no hurry to leave the fire. What's interesting to notice is that the fire still burned blazing hot while the men are in there. The Lord didn't turn down the heat. He was merely with them in the heat. You see all the lessons you could teach from this? In the fire, the three Hebrews enjoyed the greatest time of spiritual blessing and fellowship that they had ever had. Don't you know they talked about that the rest of their lives? That was the time of their greatest blessing. They had fellowship one-on-one -on -one with the eternal Son of God. No wonder they weren't in any hurry to get out of there. Can God give us greater blessings in trials than those we have outside of trials? Can he give us a better time of fellowship with him when we're in the midst of a fiery furnace? than what we experience when we're outside of the fiery furnace. Have you ever experienced that? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced a greater time of blessing and fellowship. And that's why the Lord says, not only are we to give thanks for everything, but we can even, if you're mature enough in your spiritual growth, you can even give thanks in everything. When you're in the fiery furnace, it's not always fun, but if you know your God, you know He's going to use that for your ultimate good and for his purposes and that he is there with you and you feel so close to him. I've experienced and I know many, many of you, probably most of you have. So can he give us greater blessings and trials? Yes, he can and he does. Well, a third condition that astonished Nebuchadnezzar is that they had no hurt on them. Neither the fire nor the fall had harmed them in any way. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute as we now look at the confirmation of the miracle, verses 26 and 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth, or the door, of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. What a miracle. What a miracle. 
So drawing near to the door, the mouth of the furnace, where the fuel would be added, where the bricks would be put in, where the bricks would be taken out, it would be located somewhere near the bottom of the furnace, the king calls out to the three, and he calls them by name, and I am sure there's a whole lot more respect in his tone of voice, right? as he calls out to them as not only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm sure he doesn't even know their Hebrew names, but then he calls them what? Servants of the Most High God. You know, they earlier had told him that they would not bow because they served their God. That's back in verse 17. And now he really, really recognizes that claim of theirs. Boy, oh boy, they weren't just hearers of the word, they were doers, weren't they? It's easy to say I'm a servant of the Most High God, but they proved it. They proved they really, and he respected that. He truly respected their willing, willingness to be living sacrifices for their God. They had more than adequately proven um, their servanthood to their God by their conduct. So his new title for them, um, Servants of the Most High God. I think that title was also probably motivated by who he saw with them in that furnace. Wow, you know, something is going on here. Their God is really, he's with them. If that's their, he didn't know who that was, a demigod, an angel, but he knew that their God was with them and had brought them out alive. But his use of the Most High God, that title, <clears throat> was, is, is this his salvation here? No, still not, still not. When he says most high God, that's his way of acknowledging the power of Israel's God over the power of all of his Babylonian gods. It has not yet occurred to Nebuchadnezzar that the one he thought of as the God of the Hebrews is the only God, the one and only God. To the king, he is still, as he called him back in um, verse 47 of chapter 2, to the king, the Hebrew God is still a God of gods and a Lord of kings, albeit he is the most high God of gods. You get it? He's still polytheistic. So the king, who had been greatly affected, and who wouldn't be, by the phenomenal miracle now embraces those who shortly before he had abandoned totally, you know, to utter destruction in the most horrific way. Now suddenly, you know, they're his pals. He's ready to be as kind to them as he possibly can be, perceiving that they were the favorites of the most high God of gods. You know, so he wants to get on their good side, doesn't he? So he calls them to come forth from the furnace and to come hither to him. And we know that he obviously spoke in a far more mild tone than previously because the miracle before his eyes had put out the fire of his fury. He's no longer on fire, red-faced and all that. He is, he's shocked. He's in shock. Now, the three Hebrews um, who had been not frantically looking for a way of escape totally enjoying their time in the fire with the Son of God, who I don't know if he told them who he was. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Um, because Daniel wouldn't even know about the pre-incarnate Christ, right? They didn't believe in a triune God at, at that point in time, really. God 
So um, anyway, uh, they come out. They come out. They didn't want to, but they obeyed their earthly king's command. I think that when they heard Nebuchadnezzar calling to them, they probably looked from their earthly king to their heavenly king and said, should we? <laughs> and maybe he gave them, you know, thumbs up or a nod of his head, whatever. So uh, they came forth. They really weren't obeying Nebuchadnezzar as much as they were obeying Christ. But they come forth out of the midst of the fire. Now, I picture them coming out with total integrity and dignity, you know, just coming out of their fire with all their fancy. I mean, they were high up. They were governors of the province of um, Babylon. So they had their hats and their coats and everything, and they came out just as perfect as they, they had left. Um, but I was thinking about, it was a good thing that the fourth person didn't come out with them. <laughs> that might have been the end of the Babylonian kingdom. You know what? It would have shocked Nebuchadnezzar to death if he knew at that point in time that the one in the fire with them was the stone cut out without hands who was going to one day smash. <laughs> Woke you up. <laughs> the whole image. He could have come out of that fire. I mean, he is a consuming fire. Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans, everyone would have just perished, right, if he had walked out of that fire. Um, but it wasn't his time. But he could have. He could have hit that golden image right then and there. Toes of iron or clay or gold. What well, did wouldn't matter, and the whole thing would have smashed to pieces. That would have been the end. But it wasn't his time, right? He was going to wait for the whole time of the Gentiles to be over with. But the one in the fire, the consuming fire, was also the stone. And he's also the living water. I mean, he's just on and on you can go with all the symbols of Christ. It's amazing. Well, when Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael emerged from the furnace, I said they probably did so with perfect dignity and composure. Out they come. And they probably bowed politely before the king. And they showed no display of anger, did they? Now, wouldn't you come out of there a little hot to trot? <laughs> no anger, no disrespect. And then they allow themselves to be thoroughly scrutinized. Have you ever gone to the zoo and you see the monkeys doing the other monkeys and they're looking for whatever they're looking for? In there? And I'm sure that, you know, the counselors and the governors and princes and captains are all scratching through their heads and looking for any kind of evidence of harm. And what they found... Uh, just brought absolute glory to God. That's why the three allowed themselves to be scrutinized. They knew that what they found would bring greater glory to their God. And really what the rulers discovered was absolutely impossible to fathom. They just couldn't believe it. The fire that had consumed their mightiest soldiers from the outside of the furnace had no effect whatsoever on these three, even though they had been in the inside of the furnace. The examination revealed that not even a hair of their heads was singed. And their apparel, their clothing, had no signs of scorching or charring at all. Even the bottom of their slippers, no charcoal, from the ashes on the bottom of the, of the furnace. And probably the most amazing evidence of all, the most amazing aspect of the miracle is yes, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. Wow. 
Now, I have an appointment coming up on April Fool's Day, one I dread every year. Um, you probably all do, too, when you go to see the tax person. Uh, and I dread it for more than one reason. And it's not a very good day to have your tax on April Fool's Day, is it? <laughs> I told Frank, I think we're in trouble this year. But I dread that, and she'll never hear this message, so it won't matter. But our tax lady is a chain smoker, and so is her daughter. And when you walk, and everybody in that office is smokers. When you walk in there, and she's really good, that's why we keep going to her, but whoa, I dread it because I leave with a massive headache. And I, the first thing I do when I walk into the home, my home, is take a shower and wash my hair. Because it's just, smoke has a way of clinging to clothes and hair like glue, doesn't it? So this is amazing that they don't even have the smell of smoke on them. The evidences for the miracle were exceeding overwhelming, exceedingly overwhelming. And they couldn't be denied. There was no way anybody could deny this miracle. I mean, they'd be an utter fool to say, oh, well, there was no miracle there. But that's what people down through the ages have said, oh, this is just a story. It didn't really happen. Well, they say the same thing about the resurrection. But remember what it said in Acts 1-3? After Jesus, you know, went, after he resurrected, how many days did he walk around in his glorified body giving evidence of his resurrection? Forty days. But in Acts 1-3, it says he showed himself alive after his passion, that would be his suffering on the cross, by many infallible proofs so that it couldn't be denied. Over 500 people saw him in his glorified body. Well, these three also showed themselves alive, like from the dead, by many infallible proofs. Did they not? No one could deny it. Well, let's look now at the commendation by the monarch, verses 28 to 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word. That's important. That's what God was all about. I'm going to change this decree. Okay? And he says, and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, here's the change of his word, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut, here we go, you just can't get away from all this, but shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, for the second time in his life, King Nebuchadnezzar submitted himself to God, but not yet with saving faith. Although he acknowledged him as the most high God, yet he did not acknowledge him as the only God, you know, the only one worthy of his single worship and his wholehearted service. But he did publicly praise the God, you know, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, for having sent his angel to deliver his servants that trusted in him. In fact, he also publicly commended the three men for their steadfast trust in their God. 
which so impressed him that he actually changed his word. He admitted, he, he is admitting publicly, and remember, he is an absolute monarch of a huge kingdom, the first kingdom of the times of the Gentiles, and he publicly admits um, the superior obligation that these man, men had in not worshiping any god but their own. Now, the belief, and this is prevalent even today, that certain people or nations have their own specific gods or deities, that's known as henotheism, H-E-N-O-theism. That the Hebrews have their god, you know, the, the well, Australians have their god. You hear that even today with kind of universalism. Um, well, who's to say that Allah is not the way to heaven for the Muslims and Jesus is the way for the Western world and Buddha is for these people. And, you know, that's kind of henotheism. Well, that's what he believed. Well, we can certainly say, and I just chuckled when I was studying this lesson because God has such a sense of humor. He really does. We can certainly say that the day's events had not turned out at all as Nebuchadnezzar had originally planned. His intention had been to turn his whole kingdom to absolute loyalty to him through his mandatory state religion, through the worship of his golden image, which may have even been an image of himself. But all the time, I mean, it had taken a long time to build that golden image and set up everything for the ceremony. All the time, all the energy and all the expense that he had gone to only resulted in him praising the only three men who had disobeyed his edict. <laughs> Doesn't that make you laugh? I mean, that's the truth of the situation. The whole purpose for Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol had turned around completely. I almost picture the idol standing on its head. The whole thing is just turned upside down. Nebuchadnezzar praised the men who did not bow to his idol and he blesses their God. That's proof that what he had seen was a miracle, isn't it? That is proof of a miracle. Um, and the king's proclam with his proclamation, everyone, because his proclamation would go throughout his whole kingdom, okay? So with that proclamation, everyone found out what had gone on inside of that furnace. Everyone found out why the three men had not bowed and why they came out alive. But Nebuchadnezzar went even beyond praise for the men and their God when he made a new decree. He changed his, his word. Now, if he had been in the Persian Empire, they couldn't do that. The Medes and Persians, once a king wrote a law, he couldn't change it. But this guy's an absolute monarch. If he decides to change his mind, he's the first politician, right? Changed his mind on the issue. <laughs> so he, he made a new decree. He, now he prohibits anyone in his whole kingdom, from Egypt to Iran, from speaking against Jehovah God, the God of the Hebrews. If anyone dishonored or spoke against the Jewish God, he was to be executed. How? His second favorite way, other than the burning fire. Well, actually, I guess this is his favorite. Chopping them into pieces and then making their houses into public latrines. And he gives the reason for this strict punishment. He says, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. That's true, right? 
What other God could make three men in a fiery furnace come out alive? Now think about the Chaldeans. <laughs> what a turnaround this was for the Chaldeans to hear, those anti-Semitic Chaldeans. They had been seeking for a long time to silence the Hebrews, ever since they had been humiliated with that dream thing and the Hebrews had been promoted to positions over them. They'd been looking for some 20 years for a way to silence these Hebrews because they envied them and they despised them because of their fanatic monotheism to their God. Um, and they were probably, you know, so happy that they finally had this incident where they could catch them and be rid of them, be rid of them. But now, now they would have to be the ones who were very, very careful with what they said, what they spoke in private, you know? Because if they were caught speaking against the Hebrews or their God, they would be the ones permanently eliminated. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I mean, that really is funny. And this went throughout the whole kingdom, the whole kingdom. Anybody over in Egypt talking against the God of the Jews, if someone overheard them, chop them in pieces. You know, for the rest of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the rest of the Babylonian Empire, the Jews were safe. You know that? They were safe. Because of this change of word. Look at the impact these three guys had. You know, no one ever did anything against the Jews after this. Who was the one who actually broke the king's edict? Who was the one who broke the king's edict? See if anybody can figure it out. Yes. It wasn't until his grandson, Belshazzar, the night of the handwriting on the wall, showed great disrespect for the God of the Jews by taking the temple vessels and drinking out of them at his orgy party and, you know, mocking the God of the Jews. And what happened to him that very night? He lost his life. Yeah, you better believe it. I wonder if they were cut into pieces. <laughs> I mean, that was the king's edict. Isn't that interesting? The one who broke it was his, and that very night was the end of the Babylonian Empire. You know, don't get confused. Some people think, you know, oh, well, King Nebuchadnezzar broke his own word because he threw Daniel into the lion's den. No, he didn't. That wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar. That was uh, the next empire, the Medes and the Persians. That was King Darius that threw him into the uh, lion's den. Well, the nature of the promotion of Daniel's friends is not given to us. And don't you know, this got the goat of the... Uh, I <laughs> love that expression, of the Chaldeans too. Because then they envy them for their promotion over them, and now what does the king do? Promotes them even higher. I don't know how higher he went with them, but he promoted them, and actually the Aramaic word in verse 30 means to cause to prosper. These guys obeyed God, and they prospered. They prospered. He lifted them up. Um, and I thought about whatever the king did for these Jewish men, they now had even greater influence for the Lord in that first Gentile kingdom of the times of the Gentiles, didn't they? Even more influence than they had had before. I mean, they affected the whole kingdom because they wouldn't bow. 
And this is going to be just as the 144,000 Jews of the final Gentile kingdom of the times of the Gentiles are going to have great influence for Christ during the fiery furnace days of the Great Tribulation. Okay, now here's where we get to the Paul Harvey part of the lesson. This is the rest of the story. You know, think about this. When all the eight groups of political leaders and their retinue of attendees and maybe even their family members returned to their various homes in other lands among their own people and their own native languages from their time spent in Babylon for the occasion of Nebuchadnezzar's mandatory dedication ceremony, Think of the story all these leaders had to share with the folks back home. This story could have gone something like this. Wow, <laughs> what a trip we have had. It was long, it was arduous, but it was well worth the travel time. We got to see the beautiful, magnificent city of Babylon, and it is all that you ever heard it was. It is just magnificent. It's, you know, it, the Ishtar Gate, the uh, tiled, blue tiled uh, mosaics everywhere, the magnificent golden lions in those mosaics, the hanging gardens, the city with all its temples and ziggurats. I mean, it would just take your breath away. And then we also got to see the great golden image, and it was big, no doubt about it, and it was brilliant in the shining sun of the desert, impressive. But to tell you the truth, it was nothing compared to something else we saw. None of it could compare to what else we saw. There were these three Jewish dignitaries. You know, have you ever heard of that little country called Judah over there next to the Mediterranean? Not very big, but these three Jewish guys who refused to bow to that image just like all the rest of us did. Thousands of us bowed down when the music began, but they wouldn't. Uh, and the king's command, of course we bowed, because his command, his edict, was that we either bow or we be thrown into this large, smoking, hot, fiery furnace that was right there. And we could all see it. And so, of course, we bowed. But these guys, they wouldn't bow because of their faith in their God, who they said they trusted no matter what happened to them. Well, as you can imagine, and everybody's heard that Nebuchadnezzar has an anger problem, yeah, he was furious especially when he gave them a second chance, and still they refused to bow. So into the flames they went, chains on them and everything, into the flames they went, and believe me, it was hot. It was so hot that just the heat of it killed these big guys who threw them in. But here's the amazing truth, and we know this, we saw it. Neither the heat, the flames, nor the smoke of that incredibly intense Fire did a thing to harm them. It was just unbelievable. I know you're going to have a hard time believing us, but we saw it with our own eyes. It, we witnessed it. It happened. We were there. It was like watching someone resurrect from the dead. And the king himself gave testimony of it all. You know what? Tell you what. Those, God, those Jews have quite a God. They have quite a God. You know, I don't think it would hurt us to investigate the God of the Jews. Hmm. 
that account of what happened that day, that would have literally, this isn't just a made up, this would literally have happened. God assembled all the leaders of the whole kingdom there so that word would get out. That account would have been repeated thousands and thousands of times by pagans throughout the world. And it exalted the God of heaven, the Most High God. You see, Israel as a nation had profaned the name of God Almighty. But God found three faithful servants with faith of pure gold. And he was able to exalt his holy name through their obedience and their loyalty to him. So don't just ever think, I'm one person. Think what those three guys did. They just changed everything. It reminded me of how God scattered the Jews out of Israel and from Jerusalem so that they could take the news of Jesus' resurrection to the whole world. Well, he uses all these rulers and their people that were with them for this ceremony to go throughout the whole world and spread the news about the God, the mighty God of the Jewish people. And I would think people did investigate about Jehovah God and got saved. Wow. A lot more than maybe what we heard in Sunday school long ago, right? A lot more to it. Let's pray. Father, may we trust in your great delivering power. May each of us, may each of us allow the tests and the trials and the fires and the tensions that come our way to be those things that refine us like gold and those things that speak volumes to those who watch us about the power of the God who receives such faithfulness from his people. May we truly be steadfast witnesses for you. May we not compromise and may we not forfeit the blessedness that is ours when we do stand true. And may we know with assurance that through it all, there will be one at our side to strengthen us and to comfort us in the midst of battle. Teach us how to totally submit our bodies as living sacrifices to you. And our members, our body members, as instruments of righteousness unto you so that those around us will say, blessed be the God of those Christians. And it's in our Savior's name we pray. Amen.